Welcome to the Beyond a Declaration, What Rights Can Do podcast, dedicated to humanizing rather than politicizing human rights. Today, we will be spotlighting the human right to education, a right that many see as the prerequisite right to enjoying all other human rights. My guests today are Hatim Altayeb, who describes himself as a lifelong educator with the Pan-Africanist and South-South tendencies currently serving as the CEO of the African Leadership Academy, a preeminent and perhaps even a Pan-Africanist educational institution in South Africa founded in 2004, whose student body quite impressively represents over 46 African countries. And we also have Savantika Pillay, who is a coach, facilitator, and an expert of somatic and trauma-informed processes, processes which she has designed for a number of private and public clients, including schools. I think from both the experiences and expertise, uh, we can deepen our understanding today of the right to education. This podcast is brought to you by the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation and Bubblegum Club. However, the opinions and views expressed by the speakers do not necessarily reflect those of these organizations. I'm happy to Thank you, Hatim. Thanks, Luando. Um, how do I arrive? I think um, very curious and very excited. I think it's a very relevant conversation, and I don't think we are having enough of these conversations around education. So deeply grateful also. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo the same sentiments. Uh, always grateful for a chance to step back and look at the big picture and ask the why of what we do um, and put it in the context of, yeah, um, the bigger picture, why this is relevant, not just for our community, but for all communities across the continent and for all young people around the world. I too arrive curious and uh, deeply, deeply grateful that you both said yes uh, in joining me today. And um, I I've given an introduction to the both of you and I'm sure my introductions were insufficient. So if there's anything you'd love to expand upon, please do. But um, also I'd love you to, to share with us how... And what brought you to this work? I think we should start there. What's the work that you do and what brought you to this work? Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, so I uh, came to the work of education by accident. I was actually planning Luando to become a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I was attending law school, but I did my undergraduate degree. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm Sudanese, grew up in Cairo, and was doing my undergraduate in the U.S., and at the end of it, I knew that I wanted to go somewhere else. Um, I'd kind of uh, been depleted by my undergrad experience and just very serendipitously ended up in South Africa at ALA, thinking I would stay for a year and just, I think, fell in love with the country, fell in love with the work, fell in love with the community, um, and haven't been able to leave. I tried to leave in 2012, went away for four years, stayed in the sector, and then came back again in 2016. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, I came here by accident, and then I stayed, um, I think because I, I get a great deal of fulfillment and, and stimulation. Um, you know, I, I've always wanted to be a lawyer and now I actually want to teach. So I feel like <laughs> kind of in the reverse. Uh, we can stop, 
Um, and Sabathika? Thanks, Luando. Um, as you uh, shared, um, a coach and a facilitator, I started my career as a social worker, left to join um, corporate, uh, left after 11 years to have my son. And in those 11 years, I um, uh, did various things, but um, I was also a manager of people. I, I ran an operational team. And it was there I did, I think, most of my learning and growing and found that I spent most of my time uh, on managing relationships, not the work. It was around relationships. And when I wanted to re-enter work, um, I studied to be a coach and facilitator, um, saying that I want to make corporate spaces safer. And in my training, I had to surrender to the work and face who I was and realized how unsafe I actually make people and how I was contributing to a dynamic, to a space that wasn't safe for other people. So even the people that I thought that I could, I should be, um, you know, speaking out against or whatever, but I was, I actually had a lot of the same energy. And uh, so I did that work of real self-examination and healing and, I, and understanding how I came to be this person. And that really set me on a course of healing uh, rather than thinking I could step into spaces and just change people. It was more around change yourself first. Um, and then what is what, what, what are the conditions I could create for people to do this work for themselves? And that led, led me to the somatic part of, uh, of my practice and of my focus, understanding that until we change our neurological state, our autonomic state, we can't truly change behavior or relationships because we are just in a survival state. I hope that is a, a succinct answer to your question. It, it's perfect. Thank you both. And um, you've both in your answers have highlighted the reason why I asked the both of you to be part of this conversation, because I think the way that the right to education has been historically understood is devoid of the somatic and trauma. It's devoid of a sense of pan-Africanism, of resilience, as Hatim uh, speaks of, and the approach that ALA has to education. So um, since we're spotlighting the right to education, I'd like to start with the wording from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And after I read the wording, I would love for you to give me your immediate response. Does it still sound relevant? Is there something that is of curiosity to you? Is there something that we feel should be changed in this provision? So here goes. Article 26 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states that everyone has the right to education. Education shall be free, at least in the elementary and fundamental stages. Elementary education shall be compulsory. Technical and professional education shall be made generally available and higher education shall be equally accessible to all on the basis of merit. That is the provision. And I'd love to get your instinctual reaction uh, uh, to those words. And I'll start with you, Hatim. Um, I, you know, I think it's fine. Uh, I think the reality with everything that's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or any aspirational document is we're far from achieving the basics. Um, so, you know, 
even if I have edits or thoughts or question marks, like why should it end at elementary? What's the role of secondary? We're a secondary institution. We obviously have strong opinions about the value of a high quality secondary institution education. Um, if I, I have questions about like, you can access education, but is that education making a difference in your life? Is it fit for purpose? Is it a high quality? The definition is kind of silent on that, right? Um, I like that it talks about professional and vocational training. Uh, equal access to tertiary is great, but what does that really mean, particularly in a place, um, I mean, broadly on the African continent, where I think it's something like 6% of young people have access to tertiary, and it's primarily a problem of resources rather than a problem of policy. Um, so there's lots of room for improvement, maybe, in the definition or specificity, but in the grand scheme of things, like, we haven't achieved the basics, so I'm, I, I, I wouldn't want to nitpick got you um uh, samantha uh, yeah thank you i think uh, you know i agree with her team that uh, you know as an aspirational document um there's not absolutely nothing wrong with it for me i think the question would be in order to to reach this aspiration what needs to be embedded what makes access to all of this possible and, uh, you know, it's wonderful to have a philosophy, but what, what is enabling in the system uh, that these things become meaningful? So I think that just was my, is my first response. Yeah, and, you know, we come from, this, this wording is from 1948. So um, we can just imagine all the developments that have happened in education the last 75 years and what education is being called upon to do today versus what it was called upon to do in 1948. So um, just to push a little bit then, I've sh shared with you the wording from the declaration. I would like to now know what is your definition of education? Uh, do you have a personal philosophy around what education is and perhaps is not? Savantika, would you like to go? Oops. Happy to. Um, I think for me, education is firstly the whole person or the whole child. Uh, education would attend to mind, body, spirit. There is the idea of you know, educational content, of course. It would be around preparing a child or a, a young person for the world of work. I think all of those things are given, but it is also about attending to the human being. Um, what, what, am, what am I learning about authority? What am I learning about who I am in a system? Um, how does this, so it, it's about educating us around that and what are the societies we are creating? So it's who am I? How do I locate myself uh, in a structure, in a system? Um, so for me, education is about the whole child, the whole human being, and all of those things that are, that are needed to nourish this human being. That is what education should be attending to. Hatim, would you, you endorse that? Would you build upon that? Yeah, I think I, um, I, certainly, I certainly think we need definitions of education to talk about the whole person. Um, and, uh, and I think that actually, like... That's, you know, whether the word is education or it's something else, that's probably a kind of a back to the future sort of thing. I think if you look at the way society was structured at different stages in history, 
Um, well, I think we've always understood that you know it's about becoming a full person, and that's a continuous process that doesn't end. Um, I think uh, for me, the ideas that I have been kind of settling into uh, over the time that I've worked at ALA are, um, you know, you think about the what's the purpose of education. Uh, that's useful in kind of trying to understand what the definition should be. I also think it's useful to try and think about the purpose of education and then the purpose of a school specifically. Um, and the thing, the ideas that I'm working with right now or what's, what settles in for me, which I've stolen from all sorts of people. I don't claim this uh, to be an original thought. I think education um, should make you powerful. I think education should set you free. And I think education should make you responsible. Um, when I say make you powerful, I think that means it should uh, give you powerful knowledge. Uh whether that's disciplinary knowledge or skills um, or abilities, competencies that help you move through the world. Like if you can take a piece of information, digest it and reproduce it, that's, that allows you to do something in the world, right? If you can um, explain how different chemicals interact and then come up with a new way for them to interact, that's a, a form of power you've acquired. Um, I think it also, uh, for better or for worse, trans, transmits the power, the knowledge of the powerful. These are ideas from someone called Michael Young. Um, but whether you like it or not, the society is structured in a certain way right now. You might want it to be structured a different way, but you need to learn the rules of play. And I think that's education's purpose. Um, when I say set you free, I think it's about acquiring a critical consciousness. Um, I think it's about your relationship to yourself, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, and then I think all of those things, the power you've acquired, the freedom you've acquired, uh, should be put in service of something bigger that uh, reflects your privileges and your advantages. And that's the making you responsible part. Am I right to assume that what has perhaps informed uh, everything you've just said now is that maybe that's not the education that you received? Um Oh, you know, interesting. In your formative years. Um, I think by... Uh, hmm. I, so I, de I definitely think parts of my education matched that definition, you know. Um, I hated math when I was in school. In part because I had, a, I had like a series of... In, well, my, in retrospect, I think it's in part because we had four different math teachers when I was in grade nine. And I fell behind and I didn't like feeling stupid. So I just stopped liking it. And then later in life, I became a math tutor and I had to oh relearn it. And I was like, wow, I love this. And I love that I can do stuff with this. Um, and I think, I mean, if, if other people had that experience in their math classes sitting right next to me, right? So um, part of probably some of my opinions are a reaction to the education that I had, but I think some of my opinions are also a confirmation of the education I had. Yeah, yeah I, I, I resonate with that because I too uh, did not like maths, especially because <laughs> its importance I felt was really oversold to someone who really enjoyed mm -hmm. history and English. And I was, I was made to feel like those were not good enough unless you're good mm -hmm. at maths, nothing else kind of counts. Uh, unlike you, I didn't come back to that relationship, but I think in a different structure, I would see the magic of it all and maybe perhaps be good at it. 
And maybe, um, Savantika, I'd love to know if your emphasis on, you know, the mind, body and spirit and that uh, holistic approach to education is in reaction to perhaps, you know, how you move through the education system and what you experience. Yeah, absolutely. um, So I think um, I want to say a few things. The one is in a lesson, we shouldn't simply, a teacher shouldn't simply be offering a lesson. Um, To attend to the whole child would mean to embed social, emotional learning in what's happening. Uh, You know, that's what a lesson should be. It should be just broader than delivering content. Um, Luanda, you and I have worked in the private sector schooling system. And as you know, I work a lot in the public sector right now. Part of my work takes me there. And... What, what, whether it is the private sector or the public sector, you will also recall from our pub, private sector work, grade seven children are sitting with high levels of anxiety. And it, it, it surprised us. Um, and when we think of what, what, what are the energy fields we have firstly been born into, and our children have been born into. Those need to be recognized before we are thinking about reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, So attending to creating safety for the children, both in the classroom that they are entering schools where the adults that they're with are safe, but how to help them feel safe um, and to capacitate them for safety. We can't change right now. We can't change their life circumstances. But what if we could teach them how to build capacity, how to resource them to not only overcome this, but to transcend it? These are nervous systems still developing. The the brain only is fully developed at 25. So what are we focusing our attention on without creating conditions for for firstly for learning and for enabling social and emotional development, neurological development. Did I answer your question? Perfectly so. And it takes me to my next point, um, focused on, you know, your school, Hatim, um, the African Leadership Academy. And I know that its stated purpose is to transform the continent, the continent that we are on Africa by developing a powerful network of young leaders who are ready to accelerate the continent's growth. Um, I just want to, you know, go back to those grade sevens and grade eights that I've encountered all the way to grade 12 who are sitting with anxiety. And let's say they attend a school where, we are developing you into a powerful network of leaders to change the continent. What does that do for anxiety? And also, uh, may I ask, um, what kind of leaders uh, uh, are you speaking of in the stated purpose? Yeah, that's a great, uh, it's a great question. Um, so I certainly think that, uh, a big expectation, whether it's internally developed or externally developed, can be something that drives anxiety. And I certainly think there are ALA students and alumni who have um, who experience the mission of the organization uh, potentially as anxiety-provoking. And I think it's something that 
we are trying and have tried to be conscious of. Uh, but I, but it's also something that's helped me sharpen my reaction to um, the changing landscape of adolescent mental health. And we can talk more about that in general. Um, but to maybe connect to the second point of, um, of what sort of leader we're trying to develop, for us, leadership has to manifest itself. Ethical and effective leadership has to manifest itself across all sectors. And so you need leaders in the arts, you need leaders in the humanities, you need someone who's going to pursue their passion for physics and someone who's going to pursue their, their passion for, for business or industry or public policy. But that all of those journeys are anchored in a relationship to yourself and a healthy relationship to yourself. Um, and I think if you are... Um, uh, if you're out of congruence with your values, if you haven't built habits that help you regulate, navigate crisis, um, if you aren't learning tools for interpersonal engagement, relationship building, and then really like overarching, if you're not articulating and moving towards a sense of purpose and a rich community, then you can't really, you don't have any business trying to get go after any of these other big things. And that's not a destination. Those are all iterative processes. Like you're never done reflecting. You're never done looking at your habits or building them. Um, but if a school can help a young person move towards those sorts of relations to themselves, then I, I think you're taking the first step towards helping them become a leader in a responsible and healthy way. Yeah, and, and you know, I love this idea of health, you know, um, your own health and your health in an environment. And as uh, so earlier, you were speaking of the nervous system and certainly the schools that we have encountered together that we've worked with, you know, we've experienced a certain kind of collective institutional nervous system and students have their own nervous system. Perhaps can you share some of that work for the uh, uninitiated in this kind of language of nervous systems, you know, the health of a school and the health of um, uh, its young people specifically? Okay, um, it's a big question. Um, I think firstly, we our nervous systems resonating with nervous systems on an individual level, that each of us, every second of every day, right even at this moment, we are programmed, our brain, our body is programmed to assess the cues of safety and danger. And the degree to which we do that is largely dependent on our childhood and the environment from which we've come. So when you're talking about the nervous system of um, a school, of course it is comprised of each individual nervous system. And all of these make up the group nervous system. And in this nervous system of this body, you're going to have energies that can regulate and energies that can dysregulate, or energies that are regulated or energies that are dysregulated, or nervous systems that are regulated and nervous systems that are regulated. And our first, when you and I have worked together and the work that we do together is that the first 
thing that we need to attend to is to create safety in a group. Because until that time, and whether this is at a school or in a corporate setting, but any group setting, when we enter a room, when we enter a meeting, when we enter the classroom, we are using a lot of our energy to keep ourselves safe if we are not safe. If I am doing that, if I'm using my energy to keep myself safe, I am in a survival state, which means if I'm in a survival state, my access to my prefrontal cortex, to my thinking, to all of that has been, I'm disconnected from it right now because I need to use my energy to keep myself safe. So when we think of the environment from which our children come to school, the environment from which teachers are also showing up, the amount of work they have done or not done in their own healing, all of that affects what is happening in a group setting, whether it is the classroom, the staff meeting, the parent-teacher meeting, and all of our adaptive behaviors are what is experienced in this schools in, in this group setting. Does that create a picture, do you think, Luando, that is um, easy to digest in terms of what we've done? Certainly so. And I think that when I listen to both of you, it's the idea that this language wasn't available when I was in, in school. And I often find myself thinking, you know, um, South African schools, some of them, the ones that I've encountered, are spaces of trauma. They are dysregulated. They are in flight or, or, or fight mode. Uh, a lot of it, these schools are a microcosm of what is happening out in the world in terms of the different hierarchies and different things that are playing out that are very acute in a school. And um, Hatim, um, you delivered an amazing speech in 2021 to what I assume are a group of students that had done a bit of their schooling or a large part of their schooling through the pandemic, uh, which is its own sort of crisis and trauma. And in that speech, you really emphasized this idea of resilience, right? A word that I deem so incredibly important, but I've been in spaces where it's been questioned because, you know, especially people on our continent have been, you know, uh, um, it, it, the idea of resilience is so emphasized because of the adversity that we face. And they're turning away from that language because it's as if they're being asked to tolerate this kind of adversity, right? And I, I want to hear from you on why resilient felt like uh, uh, the word you wanted to invoke to that graduating class and to maybe give it your definition and what you think that relationship between re resilience and deepening this right to education is? What is the correlation between the two? That's great. Um, <clears throat> I think I, I mean, you started by saying this vocabulary wasn't available when you were in school. I'm not going to assume your age. It wasn't available when I wasn't. I was in school 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, and I think that it is important. Uh, I think it's important to celebrate that not just the vocabulary, but the advocacy is uh, globally available and more and more available on the continent. Um, but I also think it's important to interrogate, perhaps even contest the vocabulary. So 
very quickly, kind of in the context of ALA, 15 years ago when we were founded, it was difficult for us to convince students to have a conversation with an individual who might not even be a mental health professional per se, like a life coach, about how they're managing their time, right? And then if that were to escalate to the level of saying, oh, we think you should probably talk to this therapist, it was no, it was a non-starter. There's no way that you were going to get an African teenager at ALA to have that conversation. They're like paranoid that their friends would see them go into that office and then they'd be labeled the crazy student. A decade and a half down the line, we have a, you know, a much more well-resourced mental health provision and students are very ready to take advantage of those resources, which is fantastic because you want young people to take advantage of the resources that are available to them. And you want to know that particularly those who are most at risk are being made are, 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 are more safe because they're, they're getting that kind of support. So that's all very good. But I think that this cuts both ways, particularly from an educational perspective. And what I'm going to say might not be popular and I'm happy to defend it or not, um, however you want to respond. I'm also increasingly aware <clears throat> when I hear students advocate for themselves that they might be reacting to a normal level of discomfort as a pathology. Um, and I don't want to minimize, right? But uh, you're experiencing a, a normal degree of stress, which as an adolescent is a more common and more acute experience than as a fully grown adult. You're experiencing it, and now you are referring to yourself perhaps as someone with a stress disorder or with an anxiety disorder or with a sleep disorder, which is a very real diagnosable and serviceable condition, right? Um, and, and we have to find the right way to meet young people with patience and care and love and support while also normalizing the struggle to them. Uh, and this is how it connects to resilience for me, is what I really worry about with this new vocabulary is that I, as a young person, for a variety of reasons, might be identifying with a pathology rather than identifying as someone who can experience stress, resilience, discomfort, and learn how to navigate through it successfully. Right. And that's why that's where resilience is important for me. There's actually it's not possible to learn without discomfort. There's such a thing as too much discomfort, exactly like Savantika, where she started saying you can't learn if you're not safe. You can't learn if you're hungry. You probably can't really learn if you're angry. Right. So we got to create the right conditions. But if you're not challenged, you're actually just doing what you're already able to do. You're not learning beyond that. So for me, resilience is experiencing failure. And then learning from that failure and being able to grow out of it. And that is a necessary contribution we have to make for young people if we want them to be powerful in the world. Like, the world needs a lot of work. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And particularly, this generation needs to be able to face hardship um, and react to it. Now, just to finally go back to where you started, you know, the word resilience can also be weaponized, right? Like, uh, you don't give people enough to be successful and then you tell them that you're not being resilient, right? You should be more resilient. That's, um, that's unfair and it's dishonest, right? The conditions for success have to be there. The expectations have to be high, but the support also has to be high. Um, 
yeah, that's my, those are, those are my thoughts. You know, what, what comes to mind as you say that, um, because that's certainly, certainly my approach to the word resilience, right? Um, what comes to mind is one of my favorite authors, if not the favorite, Tanahasi Coates, who named his memoir A Beautiful Struggle. And the reason why he named it a beautiful struggle is in the hopes that people can find beauty in struggle and mm. the fact that you are not promised a life devoid of struggle, but it doesn't mean that the struggle doesn't present its own beauty. And mm. I think constantly trying to escape through, you know, always invoking hope or tell me it's going to end well, everything's going to be fine. It's kind of uh, uh, seeing um, what who I can be, as you said, in the midst of the struggle, because your teachers can't tell you that you know mm. everything's okay, you know. Mm. And and so I think I'd really love to 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 hear your reaction to everything that Hatim has just shared, because I know that uh, you work with a lot of that. Mm. Yeah, just give me a couple of seconds. Um... I think there's a lot of value and resonance with what Hatim has said. I think what I, and even with what you have just said, uh, what I would add is I love the point of not over-identifying with the pathology. And because certainly we are not, we are not, we are not our illnesses. We are not our pains. We are, we are not those things. And um, we have been made to believe actually that we are those things. So not over identify or not identifying with it at all, I think is essential in this work. That said, there is something, and Hatim, I'm not sure whether you've read Dr. Gabor Mate's The Myth of Normal, this idea of what is normal and who decides what is normal. You know, what is normal? So perhaps an over response to what you and I would think is, hey, this is just regular stress. But if somebody is in our view, is overreacting to it. Um, there is nothing abnormal about that because we don't know from where that person has come and what is feeling so dangerous to the person. So I think um, this is where I just add an idea of what is this normal? And there is a myth of normal. Uh, and, and that's when we start the pathologizing and the judgments and the labeling. So I think to be, to be mindful of that, you know, in the conversation. And, you know, the idea of resilience isn't that we ask people to just keep on taking and taking and taking. The idea of resilience or anti-fragility is that I don't absorb the shock. I face the shock. I meet the shock. I meet the trauma. And I'm a better version of myself. And part, and I want to go back into, you know, what was the, uh, the, the title of the book? Was it The Beauty of the Struggle? And so this, the, this work is about not, it isn't about not being in struggle and not facing struggle, but trauma enters us when we are alone in the struggle. When we feel alone, when we feel abnormal because we are struggling. And so we need spaces where there is room for our struggle to be ventilated and held, not fixed, and for there to be a curiosity. But why is this dangerous? Why is this bringing this charge? Um, so I think it's about the nature of the conversation um, that is essential to me. Which then, uh, Hatim, um, really takes me back to your speech and uh, uh, the part of it that I really loved reading and I was hoping that 
you know, a lot of people could have access to it and maybe you could just uh, summarize it for us here. Mm. You know, when Savantika talked about being alone, uh, uh, that's when mm. resilience is hard because resilience is a communal trait. Mm. And you highlight that as a communal trait by invoking trees, mm. you know, and how trees sort of feed off from each other. So I'd love for you to, to share that in terms of how, in a, in a well-functioning uh, educational institution, mm. we could use lessons from trees to kind of enrich, you know, our, our education system and oh, um, uh, our institutions. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna recall the exact uh, how how that metaphor worked out. People can check it out on medium.com. Yes, please read the speech. At Hatimul Taib, they can read that one or any other uh, previous graduation speech. I, I use a lot of metaphors. I love using metaphors. There's one um, from Japanese pottery that I think is particularly useful. Maybe we we'll talk about it in a second for this idea. Um, but yeah, as Savantika was speaking, I was like, absolutely, community is key. Um, I started by saying you have to have a clear definition of education. And for us, or for me, it's about power. It's about transformation. It's about freedom and responsibility. Um, and then a school is the localized, translated manifestation of that definition. And the most important thing is relationships. And for me, a strong community is both a vehicle for learning and a desirable output of learning, right? Like you want people to interact with each other to make meaning together. And one of the things that we as educators or schools or teachers have to learn to do in this context is um, when you receive a young person in a class, in a conversation, informally, formally, who is struggling, uh, our tendency is to want to go into the solution, right? Like, have you tried this? Have you done that? Have you done this other thing? And sometimes it's important just to be like, yeah, you're stressed. Like, let's just sit with that for a second. And and let it be like it sucks but it's a it's a, it's an it's a it's a you can sit with it and be with it patiently um and then the other thing is you know we respond we learned how to respond we learn how to overcome we grow resilient by interacting with each other like a conversation with a peer a conversation with a trusted adult can help you um, navigate the struggle that you're in. Uh, we know, and I'm sure, I mean, both of you probably know more about the science about this than I do, but we know that doing good things for others, expressing gratitude actually uplifts us and builds more health, you know, mental health for ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's a fact of life that you will struggle. It's a piece of it that ought to be honored and celebrated um, and not hidden away. And it's important for adults to model that in a community, right? Like it's for adults to show that they are struggling, that they have been broken, that they have faced failure, that they have habits that they're still trying to build and form um, and to model working through that. Um, yeah, uh, I, I've lost my thread a little bit, but I hope I... I hope I picked up the pieces that you want. Yeah, I, you, you certainly did, especially around, you know, interacting with others and building that foundation of, of a strong community that sees us through and supports us in, in struggle. And, um, you know, I, I think 
Savantha, I'd love for you to also share that in the schools that you have worked with, right, you've encountered uh, a certain kind of nervous system, uh, certainly, you know, a nervous system that has, um, you know, made your presence in that school much needed. I'd love for you to share sort of typically what you encounter and what are some of the um, sort of um, reasons you know, whether historical or contemporary, you know, around why um, so many schools are struggling and it's having an impact. We've seen that it's having an impact on the education system where sometimes it brings the entire system to a halt because there's some discord and, and the, the school is perhaps in a flight or, or fight uh, um, or freeze mode. So I'd love for you to just expand perhaps with a bit of a case study, uh, an example that you could share with us. Um, okay, you know, I'm not so I'm not sh so much sure that I'm going to share a case study, but I'll give you an overview of what I'm seeing currently. And I think, you know, what we'll frame it with, Luanda, when you're going to be familiar with it, because we use this for a lot of our framing, uh, and it's Resma Menachem's Trauma Decontextualized. So... Uh, I want to say the three things, which is trauma decontextualized over time in an individual looks like personality. Trauma decontextualized over time in a family looks like family traits. And trauma decontextualized over time in a group looks like culture. And so if you take the school communities I'm currently working with um, in the Springs area, the government schools, highly impoverished, um, under-resourced and the teachers in the school have a history of also coming from our own and I'll say it from our own trauma fields of our own history and so and we also have a, an education system that is when you talk about the nervous system of organizations, what is the, the relational dynamic between an education system and the group of leaders in a school? It's a power over relationship. What is the relationship between the school leadership and its senior management, the senior management team over the teachers? It's a power over relationship. What is the relationship between the teachers and the students, it's a power over relationship. What's the relationship between the school and the parents who enter the school not feeling any belonging, not feeling um, equal to? It's a power over relationship. They walk into those school gates feeling a story of scarcity and not having because they don't have jobs or they don't have education. And we have stories in these communities where there is an us-them language of the school system or the, the school, the teaching body, speaking of parents as they disinterested, you know, they are, um, they don't care. And we have children coming into school who haven't had a meal, who are waiting for that meal in that school. And we then talk about, especially in the, in the older standards of children being rebellious, of not listening, of not paying attention. And what we have is, firstly, a relationship problem, because these children enter these, in, enter these 
systems into these institutions, not feeling safe, not feeling cared for, and experiencing a power over relationship. So, you know, that's, that is the energy field of, and, and what we are having are people entering these systems in survival states. That survival state could be fight or flight, as you correctly said, the power over. I will hold my authority over you because it's the only way I'm going to feel in control. We have a system where the principles are under so much pressure to produce results in a system that doesn't support the production of results. So rather than take care of the kid and the kid's needs, they've got to push a syllabus, whether or not the child is present or not, emotionally or socially. So it isn't a, it isn't a, you know, it isn't a, a case study as much as it is a system that we need to be paying better attention to. And I want to say as well that in these overburdened systems, you have people who show up every day trying to make a difference still. And we need to understand what it takes, firstly, for our children to show up in, in these schools and for teachers and principals to show up in these systems that are so overburdened, where in any given day there is a public service protest or they've got to walk into school and deal with, uh, and I'll give you an example if I'm not taking too much time. But on just two weeks ago, uh, I was at a school. We were there to do a training with the uh, with the school, with the, the, the school leaders. And the principal was completely distracted in this primary school because when he got to school, he was faced with a parent who had found her child's suicide note. This is a primary school. The Friday before this child had not come to school because she was attending the funeral of a child in the community who had committed suicide. I had the, the good fortune to speak to the educational psychologist who was called to the school to attend to the parent and the child. The role of an educational psychologist is to help a child in terms of the educational goals and needs and, and do appropriate remedial work or, 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 or setting um, um, placements. The educational psychologist was not doing that. And she shared with me that in this district, in this year, there has been already 19 suicides of children. They have 150 active cases. This means suicidal ideation, or attempted suicide. The educational psychologists are not doing their jobs because they cannot do their jobs. They are now needing to also go for their own um, psychological care, as, as we all should be doing. And we get into a place of compassion fatigue because it's the only way for us to survive what we are experiencing, that I've got to harden, I've got to protect myself against your experience because I feel helpless and powerless. So I can't, I can't allow myself to feel what's there. And in a situation like that, in a system like that, without empathy, we can't build relationship, we can't build community because we are trying to absent ourselves from what's there because we're not resourced to deal with it, to, and even to take care of ourselves. 
Um, that that is definitely a, a reality of um, so many people, right? Uh, so many, whether it's teachers, whether it's the parents you're talking about, that ecosystem, and uh, it, it's so common not only in our country but you know our continent and um, various parts of the world. And Hatim, as we um, drive towards a, a close on our conversation, is that. Um, you had to teach through crisis, teach through a pandemic, an unprecedented pandemic. And I guess where I'd love to, to, to take our conversation now is what did that teach you as an educator? You know, if you had to sort of relay some lessons learned on building a resilient school and on, um, you know, your, 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 looking back, you know, your reflection on that time. And also currently, I'm sure your stu student body is sensing quite a lot that's happening in the world. It's probably playing out in the school as well. They're caring a lot as everybody else is. And, um, you know, to an educator that's listening, perhaps, that is looking for a nugget or something to put in their toolkit, what would you share as sort of a, a, um, a way of concluding our conversation on how we deepen our approach to this right to education. And, you know, when we started this conversation, you rightly pointed out that Article 26 of the Declaration remains so aspirational, but we're all trying to do the work of trying to make it real. So in that work of trying to make it real, even through crisis, mm -hmm. uh, what, mm -hmm. have you, what do you have to share sort of as a close for us? Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, and I'll just try and, and share a few thoughts that are a bit muddled, but hopefully can, um, yeah, honor what's been shared. So I want to start by acknowledging that the context of our school, African Leadership Academy, is an exceedingly privileged context, right? We, um, we have the resources to house, feed, clothe everyone and keep the power on and not worry about security and not really worry about um, what is happening in the world around us and as far as it might detract from having a safe, welcoming, highly functional learning environment. And we still have our challenges, um, but I want to make sure that whatever I share is taken with enough grains of salt and I don't want to minimize the challenge, particularly after what Savantika just shared. Um, and I actually want to start there. The first thing is to acknowledge that so much of what we have built in terms of systems for education around the world are intended to replicate and maintain the existing relations of power. Um, and what we probably need and want is for education to play a role in reversing, transforming, upending relations of power. And that requires significant political will. Secondly, you can't expect schools and educators to work miracles if they are operating within a system that is failing people's basic life necessities and rights on a regular basis. There's this thing that's happening where schools are increasingly becoming the site of all social responsibility, feeding, the family structure, education, employment, income, and it's not reasonable to expect that educators or schools that they themselves are having to move through a broken system are going to fix everything. Um, you need systemic solutions that address 
kind of all of society's needs. Um, and I think that schools have a role to play, but we have to be really careful not to overburden schools and educators uh, when already they're under resources to, to kind of achieve the important outcomes that they've, they're supposed to be achieving. Um, on lessons from the pandemic, I think I have two thoughts. Number one, you know, we've talked about um, young people, adolescents, mental health, how important informative youth, particularly early years, are. Um, I think it's also important to acknowledge that young people are, um, perhaps because of that plasticity, they can recover and respond in ways, particularly with each other, that uh, will always surprise you. You know, we kept, we had students through the pandemic that um, every day lifted my spirit and lifted each other's spirits, um, even though the kind of the sky was falling down. Um, and I think that's true for young people everywhere. Uh, if you can create enough of a space for joy to spark, you'll be amazed. Uh, and then the other thing is to say, um, I really think that one of the key antidotes to um, anxiety, to despair, to um, any number of uh, challenges that you know, it seems like we're experiencing as a second pandemic. I really think that uh, if you can put purpose and meaning at the center of things, like the reason you're learning math, the reason you're learning history um, is so that you can find a problem you care about solving and get better at solving that problem. And it doesn't have to be the same one for the rest of your life, but at least for tomorrow. If you can get at that and then attach it to building meaningful relationships with yourself and with other people, that's the biggest service that we can do to young people. Um, yeah, purpose and relationships. Uh, I'm, I have one more question for you, but before I get to that, <laughs> yeah, uh, Savantika, yeah. I'd love to know, um, you know, as Hatim was speaking, you know, like these schools that you've described where they are on survival mode, how do you even begin, you know, uh, to try and and transform that nervous system into a healthy one where you are basically working with the bare minimum in terms of infrastructure? Um, and does the school community receive your, your intervention? Are they able to receive that intervention? And is it possible to transform that nervous system? Yes, uh, thanks, Luanda, for that question. Uh, it is absolutely possible. Right now, I'm, you know, I work just with the principals. I don't work with the children directly. And so, part of the work that I'm doing with the principals is for us to do the self-examination of how do we show up here? Who is the I that teaches in the school that isn't really, you know, that is overseeing the school? Um, what is it that shapes my relationships and how I show up? What is my expression of authority? What happens to my authority when you show up with your authority? So that's the type of work that I'm doing with them. But also to go really down to the level of the body. To say, what is happening in your body? How are you feeling sitting here? Um, and that is, and, and how can we replicate what we do in these circles in the classroom? What if we could start every lesson with a minute of silence or two minutes of silence? What if we could 
use learning circles in overcrowded classrooms. So it's trying to shift the paradigm and create new ways. It's about saying to a school principal, what if you are not, what if you are leader as convener, that your job is to create the conditions for, other to, to, for others to think well? And if, what if we could start delivering that kind of model in the classroom? What if we could teach children that it is normal the myth of normal, but it is normal, not to make it abnormal, that you are restless in class, that you can't focus, that you are fighting. What if we could teach children how their bodies work, what happens on the brain, in the brain, when people are surviving, and to start working with emotions and feelings, and for them to pay attention to what is happening in their bodies and how they're responding to that. So that is the type of work that we are landing in the space, I'm landing in the space to try and create a new model, a new way of being in these institutions. I do want to say that my phone is about to die. So, um, <laughs> okay, we are on to the last question. Um, Hatim, quickly, I know you're about to leave. I'd love to know that other than the right to education, what other right, what other human right would you love to see become more real, to go beyond being just a declaration? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, so much of it is, is aspirational. Um, I really think uh, both in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the South African Constitution, there's an emphasis at the very beginning on basic universal human dignity. And, and dignity is, is it's like it communicates everything, right? Like how can you really feel like you're honoring universal human dignity if there's any discriminatory practice, if you are um, not creating a pathway to livelihood for every person, if you're not allowing people to discover the wonder and power and um, evocativeness of, of an education, if you're not allowing people to relate with each other the, way this, the ways that they want. So I, don't, I, I honestly don't think in terms of language and aspiration, you have to go much further than that. Um, and I think... You know, while uh, there's still a very long way to go, ALA as an institution is proud to be in a country like South Africa that continues to try and pursue those rights where there's a, you know, uh, still a highly functional judiciary at the constitutional level that's trying to hold the powers that be accountable to the aspirations of that document and where that document represents a democratic process that is that honors indigenous values while also um, acknowledging where we are in the story of human civilization. So, yeah, dignity. Thank you so much. Um, and embedded in every right, what underpins all these documents, these charters, constitutions, and all of that is that idea of dignity. And the reason why I asked this last question is perhaps to, to for our listeners to understand that these rights are indivisible, right? That in as much as we're highlighting a few they're all connected. And Savantika, same question to you. You know, what is another human right that's on the edge of your thinking that you would love to see become more than just a declaration, but be fully lived in and become a reality for all people? I am just completely in line with Hatim. Whatever we 
aspire to, it has to be accompanied by a right to dignity because that will ensure all of those other aspirations are actually achievable. So if we're thinking about education, that I have the right to learn, um, I, write, I have the right to education in conditions that enable my learning. A, uh, I come from a home where there is food on the table and running water and parents who are who have employment I come to a school where I'm safe where there's running water and there aren't 40 children in the classroom so it is that right to dignity I have a right to school shoes and um, warm clothes those so it's it's about those if you just say the right the right of dignity I think it it um, creates it puts a whole responsibility on us what what makes that dignity possible and it is our basic living needs and I think that is the perfect note to end our episode. I think everything we've spoken about when it comes to the right to education is in service to dignity. It is in service to all the other human rights and the matrix, the constellation of all these rights and them becoming more real and one right uh, being fulfilled you know, fulfills many others. They are not uh, individual in that sense. They're not isolated. It's a constellation of rights. And I'd love to thank my guests today, today for clarifying that, that these rights are connected, that without, you know, uh, the right to food, for example, the right to a, a, a warm home, uh, the right to, um, you know, psychological safety, these can be considered almost new human rights that are emerging around this uh, language around trauma. I'd love to thank Savantika. I'd love to thank her team for your valuable insights, sharing your experiences, and uh, hopefully our listeners will find this conversation as enriching as I did. Until next time, thank you so much. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you, Luando. Thanks, her team. Bye. Bye, this podcast is brought to you by the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation and Bubblegum Club. However, the opinions and views expressed by the speakers do not necessarily reflect those of these organizations.